Today in the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we have your week in IndyCar listener Q&A. On Wednesday, we're going to have our man Michael Andretti, who has been on the podcast before, but I believe this is going to be his very first week in IndyCar guest appearance. So looking forward to that with our man, Mr. Andretti. A little bit of stuff to get to before we move on to your Q&A items that were sent in. As always, we say, oh boy, I'm stumbling already. i got to take another sip of coffee. It's only Monday at 5.29 p.m. Uh, big thank you to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. It's huge, huge supporters of what we do. And also our pals at torontomotorsports.com have all kinds of great t-shirts and stickers and racing memorabilia. Lots of good stuff there. Stickers aplenty. And then finally, Bell Racing Helmets USA, another fine partner of ours dating back to 2018. So, been a fun week. <laughs> fun. So, as I mentioned last week, we did cross the 5 million downhold. I'm leaving this in. This is my unpolished turd of a show. I don't know why. My brain does not connect to my mouth as often as it should. But here we go. 5 million downloads and or streams. And since then, yeah, boy, uh, it's been a, a humbling day here on a Monday. Trying to capture a podcast with a friend of mine in the industry. And uh, yeah, first time I've seen him play the big timing role. He's, he's a little too busy. He's a little too important. So we'll go ahead and leave that one alone. And then was wanting to interview a NASCAR driver. And granted, they don't know me from Adam in NASCAR. So not a total surprise that I got the very polite, uh, we wish we could accommodate all media requests. Uh, very soft reply, which actually wasn't a no. But uh, anyways, it was a polite no without saying no. So... That's been a little bit of what's been going on today. Realize that I have been failing of late, if not for a good long while, to mention that if you are a big fan of the Q&A portion of our show, and that's the thing you want to listen to only, well, each week after we're done recording, after I have everything produced and ready to get uploaded, I go and take a look and mark the exact point where the Q&A starts, and I enter that information into the episode description. So whether you're downing, downing, downloading, I'm just going, not editing, it's my unpolished turd, you get all the mistakes. Whether you're downloading this, streaming it, whether it's on a tablet, a PC, your phone, whatever, there is an episode description that will tell you exactly when the Q&A starts in the episode. So if that's the thing you want and only the thing that you want, I would strongly urge you to use that information because I put it there for that exact purpose. Uh, would say as well, um, if you're not a fan of everything that comes before the Q&A, uh, you're, you can send me complaints, which I do get, but I would just say, again, I'm arming everybody with the numerical information that helps you skip past 
the non-Q&A part. So I'm going to make a reminder to do a better job to say in the opening couple minutes of every episode here of the Week in IndyCar Listener Q&A that there is indeed a timestamp in the episode description. It changes from week to week. It's never the same. But if that's what you want, look at the episode description. Fast forward to that part. I believe immense happiness will be achieved. So let's get into a couple of other items, a little bit of catching up. So last week in the preamble to the Q&A, I mentioned that I was thinking about trying to do something about the Cleveland Summit. Ended up doing that. And thank you for the kind responses that came in as a result. Uh, have reached out to a couple of the drivers mentioned in that, unrelated to my note earlier about interviews, and spoke with one driver's manager today who said he'll get back in about a week driver who I think could be a catalyst to actually making something like the Cleveland Summit possible, uh, reached out to an IndyCar driver mentioned in that piece, and I would say the amount of times I've had to call and follow up and follow up and have nothing happen um, would suggest that Maybe this driver is not particularly interested in doing more than showing social media support. So, free country, his choice. There you go. Uh, What else can I share with you? It was really interesting late last week to see a quadruple fringe racing media outlet with almost no audience uh, comprised of some crazy hardcore uh, racist types. It's really awesome to see them uh, get checked (laughs) in what's been going on in the last month or so in our country where folks are, for the first time, in terms of racism and discrimination, uh, lots of folks whether it's individuals or companies or racing series or being asked to pick sides. And uh, it was really interesting to see some very proactive efforts from a number of people say, yeah, you know what? Um, You maybe can't continue to just operate in the shadows and be hardcore bleepity bleeps. So that was actually quite interesting. And I also, it reminded me, of how I've been complicit in not being hardcore with that group uh, and just ignoring them. Not that I honestly know much about their daily activities other than they steal a lot of what I write and have for 10-plus years along with some of my other friends in the IndyCar media side and steal their work as well, but... Yeah, um, thinking back about this, uh, I should have been calling them out for a long time. And not just for the theft part. They have been. They've received all kinds of uh, cease and desist letters. Um, But I'm talking about the, hey, you guys are super racist. Even if you're the smallest entity here and no one really reads your stuff and no one really knows or cares about you, you're still garbage. So really cool to see uh, some 
greater efforts afoot to room, take out the trash, I guess, is maybe the convenient way of putting it. You know, the last thing I thought I would mention, if you are a user of the Instagrams and Twitter and Facebook, but I would say primarily Instagram, I would strongly recommend following one of our show patrons, one of our dear friends and someone I've known for 20-plus years, that being Ed Justice Jr. Ed, like myself, also a photographer, he has been spinning photographical yarns on IG for a couple of months now, pulling from his own archives. And so it could be many different things. Could be NHRA, sports cars, IndyCar, Formula One, you name it. Ed has been doing this, it's just stunning, stunning thing where he's been using Instagram as a true storytelling medium, not only with a photo that tells that story, but also going in and just adding these exquisite tales uh, to support them as our cat Rosie starts meowing in the background. She too is a fan, so I got her signed up. Um, I, If I was a smarter guy, I'd have his... IG address right in front of me. I'm guessing it's at Ed Justice Jr., something like that. But just if you enjoy the history of the sport, pretty much all the photos you're going to see are black and white. But just I love him because each day he's putting up something and telling some sort of story that even if I kind of knew it, I come away with five new angles to it and facts and just something to enjoy. So it's not a plug. It's not anything. It's just one of our, our show patrons and one of the prime supporters of what we do is also someone who's been around the sport forever, been shooting it forever, and has a mind like a steel trap. So the stories that Ed's been sharing, truly one of my daily little favorite things to, uh, to wake up and see so let's get rolling with your questiones. Definitely, definitely appreciate the whole bunch that we got. I'm going to get through as many as I can. Uh, we've got about, I think I can go for about an hour and a half before Mrs. Pruitt says, Hey, you dummy, get some dinner going, get some something going. She really worked, uh, worked her tail off today in physical therapy. So good on her. All right, we're going to open up with uh, my man John Wojnar, who Wojnar, whose last name I can't pronounce, uh, but he lets me invert it and just call him John Ranjow, which is not too far away from John Rambo. Uh, let's see, we got a little bit of fun here using one of my, actually my favorite WWE tag team, uh, that being the New Day. He says, "Ah, oh, Marshall Pruitt." Don't you dare be sour. Clap for another episode of the world-famous Listener Q&A and feel the power. He says, hope all is good, pal. John says, NASCAR made waves announcing the ban of the Confederate flag and joining the You Can Play uh, LGBTQ plus initiative. Um, says, IndyCar, on the other hand, has been quiet. Are things in the works to join the You Can Play initiative or already on the books regarding the flag john goes on to say i know a flag man got cut from the indycar series for questionable facebook posts 
was wondering what's IndyCar's inclusion plan. As always, prayers for you and your wife. We'll mention here as I also try and do, but realize that I probably fail at this from time to time, tend to open the show with a uh, a bigger topic, uh, something that's a little meaty to dive into, and then try and pick up steam from there. But we usually visit a little bit with the first question. So I don't know, John. Uh, I've heard some rumblings and rumors, not specific to flags, not specific to gender, ethnicity, or sexual identification, but I've heard that IndyCar is mulling on doing something, and I'm trying to find out more. So just share this little bit, and, you know, for those of you that might click stop and then unfollow or block or whatever, I am so cool with this. Truly, I'm saying this in the affirmative. Please, if you're so inclined, there's no hard feelings. I have enjoyed, truly enjoyed seeing the limited number of unfollows and whatever else that have happened in recent weeks. Is I have posted things that have been pro-black, pro-gay, pro-whatever that might challenge someone's rather limited view of the world. Uh, Anti-Confederate flag, whatever. I'm not claiming to be any kind of, you know, guy in the front row of the fight. Not at all. But I am saying I'm just going to be me and what I do, and that is someone who is not going to play and has no time for someone who wants to tell me about how people of color should or shouldn't do whatever LGBTQ plus should or shouldn't women should or shouldn't uh, Confederate flags or heritage. I got no time for nonsense and I'm not going to. So that's why I've actually just really kind of enjoyed saying, cool, uh, if this is a jump-off point for whomever uh, with me and or what I do or my podcast or whatever, like, truly, thank you and best of luck, and I hope your mind opens because if you're looking for a safe space from all that, my show has never been that and will never be that. So that's why, John, when I hear rumors and rumblings that IndyCar is working on something, although I don't know what it is, it makes my insides smile. And it makes me feel like there's true progress that could happen here. But I don't have an answer on what it might be. So that's a little bit vague. Yes, IndyCar has been quiet, the thing that surprises me. This is not trying to bash IndyCar. This is just stating facts as they've been presented. NASCAR has been... NASCAR is known as the most backwards, retro, uh, black and white series in a color world forever. Technologically, when it comes to inclusion, 
when we're talking discrimination, just all everything, right? It's just backwards. They've been trying to fight that and change that over the last however many years. But here all of a sudden, in a span of like a week to two weeks, NASCAR has gone from being on the social responsibility depth chart, the bottom, the dregs, to the absolute clear and unquestioned leader. It's amazing, John. And I say this again with all positivity and praise towards NASCAR. Who the heck would have thought, right? How long did it take them to realize that you could use engines without carburetors? <laughs> Haven't been sold for, you know, decades, it seems. Uh, the most anti-technology, anti-everything. Look, we're just going to stay stuck in the past. Screw y'all. We're they're flying the Confederate flag and yada, yada, yada. Now, they're leading. They are leading the industry, John. It's amazing. This is why, like, seriously, we're living in amazing times. The The stuff that's happening every day. The, hey, man, yeah, go ahead, helmet painter guy or flagger guy. I've never seen him. Uh, and that, the guy got fired, I don't know if I've ever seen him. Uh, but regardless, yeah, sure, play yourselves. Go ahead. I've been listening to that song, by the way, from uh, J. Rue the Damager called You Played Yourself. You're playing yourself, I should say. Yeah, dude, go ahead, post your social media thing criticizing Black Lives Matter, and this, do it, sure. Yeah, invite yourself to not having a job anymore. My goodness, do you learn nothing? So, wow, John, we're living in this space where, with NASCAR as the lead, some nonsense is starting to get cleaned up. There's a lot more to clean up, like a lot more. Uh, there's so much more to do, but man, uh, I am so encouraged that some things could, bigger initiatives could happen. I had a friend of mine, woman in the sport, shoot me a note today saying, so now that NASCAR is making the big gesture to respect everyone, does that mean we can get rid of scantily clad women in victory circle asking for a friend? And again, this is part of it, right? I don't need that nonsense. We look stupid. You know, grid girls and all that non. Come on. We're adults here. And if we aren't adults, we got kids. Really? Do we need that nonsense? We never have never cared for it, right? Uh, if you got to salivate over women, scantily clad women at a at a racetrack, like, let's talk about how we can improve your home life because, you know, come on need this nonsense but it's that kind of thing john where wow you know this confederate flag gone that's crazy in terms of a thing that i thought would never happen so coming back to your topic of what does indycar have coming what might they do what's the inclusion plan i don't know i did start a column uh, towards the end of last week, I don't know if I'm going to finish it. And it was kind of sort of on the subject. Hey, if racing is real right about now, 
And if all this, let's make the world a better place and stop doing the crappy, dumb, uh, discriminatory things that we've been doing and just not thinking about, not placed any emphasis on improving, if there's a real motivation, John. And since we're talking IndyCar show here, the thing that I started writing, and I've only, it's a couple little thoughts here and there and some outlines that isn't, it's barely even a thing is well so nascar is now the thought leader and the moral leader that's great that needs to happen it's the biggest most popular form of motor racing in the country this is that that means something it's the most identifiable form of our sport if they're cleaning up their act that speaks the loudest to the greatest number of people what are we doing in indycar so far Jack squat heard there could be something coming. I don't know what it is, but for what I've started to noodle on story-wise, it's been, well, Hey, if we're serious, man, there seem to be some pretty cool opportunities to make IndyCar racing less 100% non people of color for the most part. I realized Takuma Sato being Japanese, Pato Award being Mexican. Obviously, that's a kid of color. Takuma, man of color. I get that. And I'm not saying anything, and again, not saying anything in a negative way there. But I'm talking more the kids that are really truly brown skin. And they don't have to be African-American. They don't have to be anything. They could be Indian-American. They could be Native American. Just saying, when we look at IndyCar, there's pretty much a common shade, and there's a common gender. There are no women racing an IndyCar full-time. We don't even know if we're going to have a single woman at the Indianapolis 500. Pippa Mann's been saying that for a little while on social media. I don't see her stuff all that often, but I know that I've seen some things somewhere about the fact that she might not have an opportunity. And if so, wouldn't that be crazy, John? In 2020, in a year where, as a result of some murders of men and women of color, we as people in this country and also in our little sport are willing to look and go, huh, so does everything we have been doing make sense? Anything we could do better? Um, Seems like a prime opportunity to say, yeah, that would be really strange to have 33 men, just numerically 33, all 33 are men. There's no need. There are women with talent. Just, yeah, hey, there's the thing. Opportunity. Who's trying? Who's looking? Everyone forgets Simona De Silvestro's phone number? <laughs> I mean, you want to talk about a turnkey badass woman. There she is. Christina Nielsen, sports car champion. She's never done open wheel. I don't even know if she has a real interest in open wheel. I can tell you I'd love for someone to dedicate some time to find out because she's been pretty darn good in IMSA. Oh, hey, Catherine, freaking leg, turnkey badass, John. 
multiple time Indy 500 starter, rarely with a front running opportunity, but hey, she's the pro's pro, badass. And hey, you know, there's this thing called the W Series. There are some very talented women at the sharpest edge of that field. Hey, Jamie Chadwick. Hey, Alice Powell. Hey, let's talk. And yeah, you might say, well, is it merit-based? And is it, you know, did you earn it? Come on, man. Uh, If we want to run down the list of all the full-time IndyCar drivers and just all those that we would expect to be in the field of 33, with some of them, we know that decisions were made. We're going to go with you. We have an opportunity. We're choosing you. We're not even thinking uh, outside of this very narrow model. In the NFL, they have the Rooney rule. It's created because year after year after year, head coaching opportunities. Now it's moved into general manager. Now they're trying to expand it into offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator. Year after year after year, men, again, men, but uh, candidates of color not even being considered. We're just going to go with the old familiar system. They had to create the freaking Rooney rule to say, hey, if you got an opportunity for one of these things, you have to include, I forget what it is, it might be two, one or two coaches of color just as a candidate to make sure, good Lord, since you're not willing to do it on your own, we're going to come up with a rule that forces you to break yourself out of your comfort zone when considering your hiring practices. Still a free country. Can't force any NFL or IndyCar team owner to hire anyone they don't want to, but at least on the topic of, okay, yeah, the, Go for the white guy again. There's nothing wrong with white guys. I'm one of them. Just trying to share here that it's a mindset that needs to be improved. And it's one where you go, oh, well, yeah, Simona De Silvestro never really had a quality ride offered to her. She did have limited opportunity with Andretti Autosport in 2015 when... Honda's brand new aero kit was a bit of a dumpster fire and the Honda's got their butts kicked up and down everywhere. Um, but here's someone who most of us are convinced given proper opportunity and consistent opportunity with a quality team. Yeah. We're talking about a woman that should be winning races, but She's currently farting around in Formula E as a test driver with Porsche. (laughs) What? (sighs) Anyways, so to come back to your question to close here, John, for our opening topic, our, our deeper visit of the week, I don't know what the inclusion plan is. But for what I've started writing, it is saying, hey, if we're going to start assessing how we do things, and maybe apply that Rooney rule mindset. Yeah, there are some drivers of color. There are some women to be considered as drivers. What can we do more in the workforce standpoint? There are 
a handful, small handful of women in prominent engineering roles and managerial roles. Carlin is one destination. Firestone's another. We know that Errol McLaren SP on the engineering side, Chip Ganassi racing on the engineering side. Uh, and again, the very select places. There should be more because if we go away from the racetrack, we see that, yeah, there sure are a lot of women in the world. <laughs> and I realize that, yeah, racing's a male dominated sport, but man, let's maybe ask some questions about can we do better? Can we think in a more liberated mindset so that we don't just keep coming up with the same answer year after year? Uh, is there a IndyCar drive for diversity type deal? Again, borrowing from NASCAR. And I know that thing gets panned and ripped apart all the time, but I don't care what NASCAR has done so much. It's not a NASCAR show. But is there a drive for diversity type thing IndyCar could do? Is there a motivation to do that, John? It's part of what I've you know, just been noodling on here. I don't know. And that's that's where I'm at here. We're now a couple weeks out from we're at, yeah we're a ways out from Mr. Floyd's murder, even further out from Miss Brianna's murder. Uh, there have been more killings since. What I don't know. And what time is going to tell us is, is our sport, John, just going to be disposable in this regard? Yeah, we care. Black Lives Matter. Post black squares on social media. And, oh, hey, oh I remember when we did that. Yeah, I felt really good, didn't it? Yeah, what else did we do? Ah. Let's move on to the next topic that's a little more comfortable. I hope that's not the answer, John, but we're kind of in that intermediate zone of, all right, it's been a, tomorrow will be what? Two weeks since black hashtag blackout Tuesday. Don't know if I've, I've seen a whole lot of anything from anybody in our specific world of IndyCar to tell me that, uh, the momentum has been maintained. All right. We're going to move on to couple of questions on Indy Lights. Ryan Terpstra, the show's spirit vegetable. MP, any thoughts on what Roger Penske is going to do with Indy Lights? I believe an interview and comments alluded to teams drawing from the leader circle, needing to support Lights teams. That could mean technical assistance, like a Michael Shank Racing and Dreddy Autosport thing, or it could mean go run a car. says, I don't know. Uh, I says, I know you don't like to get too much into a topic you plan to would write about. Is there just not enough there to write about yet? Uh, and then Mike Mata says, if you're in charge, how do you incentivize additional IndyCar teams to field Indy Lights cars? And on the flip side, how can the series better help ladder series teams to progress or progress up the ranks? Let's go with Ryan's. So, yeah, uh, I did interview Jay Fry about this. Uh, Thursday, maybe? Last Thursday? Wednesday? I don't know. Uh, I've been sitting on it because I think on Monday... The previous whatever a week ago or Tuesday, um, sent a note saying, "Hey, uh, would love to have a longer call slash podcast slash turn that 
interview into words and stories type deal with, with Roger. And I mean, if I need, I think someone asked how hard it is to get it, Roger on the show. I'll, I'll address that when I get to it, provided I don't forget it. But you know, if I need something from Roger, I just call Roger and he's always super, you know, he's pretty amazing that way. He knows that I don't waste his time and I'm not blowing up his phone or his inbox with a bunch of nonsense all the time. So if I call or send an email, I have a question about something, he tends to pick up right away or get back to me pretty quickly. And so if this were just a quick thing like that, Ryan, I'd call RP, get two minutes from him on it, and then go. Well, waiting to hear back on uh, when we might be able to record something a little more in-depth on a variety of topics, this being one of them. So I mention all that because I do have Jay's insights on this from Indie Lights, but I also know that sometimes RP, if he gets a request, talk about a couple of specific things and sees that that topic is then covered off with someone else, that's often a reason to say, well, there's no need to have the conversation at all. So there you go. A little bit of uh, inside baseball. Sitting on the J interview, hoping to do the same with Roger and maybe get some more insights and depth. Uh, Did call Dan Anderson, a good man who runs Indie Lights series and the Road to Indie in general. And he said, well, let me listen to Roger's interview that he did with, I think, I forget who, um, before commenting, and I haven't heard back from him. I also haven't chased him back down again. So these are how some of these things work quite often, Ryan and dear listeners. Uh, It's not just a phone call and a question and a answer and then a story. Um, Yeah, there can be a lot of little tentacles here to get cleared up. In what I posed to Jay, which... He didn't answer with a lot of specificity to use a word that's bigger than my mouth should understand. Uh, I'm not totally clear on how they're going to do this. So that's what I'm trying to figure out from RP. Because if there's real interest in building up Indie Lights, then you can do one of two things that make sense to me at least with the leader circle. So the average budget to run an Indy lights car, it does obviously vary. We have to ignore this year cause it's not happening, but in a normal year you'd hear from folks that, you know, you're talking, if you want to do craziest bare bones, 800, 850 grand, uh, let's just call it a million dollars round round figure of a million. And you can spend more. Of course, some do, but let's just call it 1 million. Um, if the leader circle right now is 1.2 million and you say, well, we'll make that two. Okay. We'll make that 2 million. Even if you add a single Indy lights car, well, it's 800 grand. It's not going to cover the full season, the full budget, but it will at least get you car engine lease tires. So on cover salaries and such and that would then again depending on how the team puts it together if they have extra transporters and blah 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 you know that should cover off the asset acquisition for the year and hopefully again you can amortize that over multiple years but let's say you pump that leader circle up to two million with that 800 specifically for indie lights and you got to show receipts for it right uh, show receipts, show how it's spent, honor it, honor what that has meant 
to be spent on, uh, teams should be able to put together the at least one vehicle, if not two, but at least put together a one-car team and be able to ask a half budget of a driver. That would be pretty darn amazing. I think you got something to work with there. And I don't know if Roger and company are ready to say, and if you want to add a second car, we'll make your leader circle, you know, 2.8 million. I don't, you know, I don't know if we're going to go that far. But if we had three, four, five teams say, cool, well, we'll chuck, <laughs> we'll chuck an extra Indy Lights car into our mix you do get to 14 to 15 cars pretty quickly. And with IndyCar teams doing that, I have to believe it wouldn't be too long before, say, after a first-year exploration ride with that one car, do well. I don't think those teams would have a hard time expanding out to two. And all of a sudden, we're at 20-ish, and the grid looks exactly like it should. New business opportunities are being developed, and I think that's pretty amazing. Another part to this, and this is having to accept reality. The reason that we have struggled to have more than 9 to 10 Indy Lights cars, again, it's it's just a duh, stupid thing to say, but it's budget. It is the cost. And so what does this mean... What does this mean for budget reduction? Well, there's been a huge effort by Dan Anderson, Delara, AER, Cooper Tires, up and down to try and find all financial efficiencies to bring down the operating costs a bunch, a bunch, a bunch, a bunch. It still lands in a place where there are too few fathers and mothers who are capable of affording it and that's really what this is on very rare occasion do we see big companies or whatever size company but companies paying out a million bucks in straight sponsorship for little jimmy or little Susie to drive an indy lights car for the year there might be some of that but by and large it's a lot of parents who do well have connections at a company or multiple companies get some of their friends to chip in it's kind of a village raising each entry in that regard and the reason that we have so few cars is not because the series is anything other than awesome that the entrance running cars aren't awesome that there aren't plenty additional entrants who would love to be running cars the amount of people walking around with the, again, just call it round million dollars to spend per year is nothing like it once was. And so that's why we have so few cars. This is where I think real leader circle value could be presented. Hey, if you sign up to run one, we'll give you again, I'm just picking the number 800. I'm just saying, let's call it a, a again, round 2 million payout for the first timers you know for those that might not have car that might not have anything well here's your startup some of that budget is startup money but the other half of that is to help offset the cost for little johnny and little Susie to come and drive because 
IndyCar teams receiving money to buy all the equipment and put everything together and have two beautiful, shining Indy Lights cars, brand new, waiting for someone to call and pay to drive them for a year is not going to (laughs) happen. So that's where the real value here, Ryan, would be. Okay, help them get the cars. And there are some out there that can be leased for sure or used ones purchased and so on. You know, there are There's not a, a lack of lights cars. Uh, there are some extras that certainly can be purchased and then we'll make some new ones if needed. But where IndyCar can do the most good right now is to truly crack the budget problem that has kept so few drivers from, or has kept too many drivers from considering Indy Lights. So that's that. The other side, if we're talking incentives, another thing Jay mentioned, which he said, you know, it might not be money. Could you try and take away some of the bills? You know, could you remove some of the costs that IndyCar teams are paying in certain places associated with the leader circle? Um, Again, could it be offsetting Firestone tire lease? Uh, could it be test days? Could it be fuel? Could it be, could it be, could it be, yo, so on and so forth. Uh, hospitality suites at tracks that the series owns or promotes. Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do this. I think the first route that I mentioned might be the easiest, but there could be some teams where, you know, maybe they're looking for some bigger deals in other areas to help them in other side, other parts of their business. So this is something that I hope to get more in depth from our man, Mr. Roger Penske. Mike, your question here about incentivizing, um, covered that off in Ryan's question here. You said on the flip side, how can the series better help ladder series teams progress, progress up the ranks? I'm like, why am I forgetting how to pronounce the word? Uh, yeah, there sure is. But, you know, outside of monetary things, we just saw it today. It's really nice to see that IndyCar and uh, the Road to Indy have uh, filled in some more finances as well to make automatic leaps for the USF 2000 champion and also the Indy Pro 2000 champion move up. That's amazing. I'd say the marketing and promotions is really the side that would help the most as I view it, Mike. Only downside right now is IndyCar's communications department, marketing department, are not flush with people. They have very good people in them, just not enough people in them to then add on things like this to help the USF 2000 team grow, promote themselves, find more sponsors, find more customers and clients. You know, These are all things that, with a will, could be done. Well, now it's time for a slight intermission, dear friends. You might hear a mild vocal difference and hopefully a lack of clipping in the audio. Uh, I updated the firmware on my little podcasting mixer supreme. And while this episode is not the first that was recorded while using the upgraded firmware, After finishing 
this episode <laughs> uh went to play it back and everything in the beginning was great and then as i tend to do i just check through some other destinations throughout the file to see how it sounds and heard that it was uh clippity clickety twitchity not great so i apologize for whatever caused it to happen i have no idea what but it did i left in the explanation here on indie lights and such because you know it started up in the middle of it and i don't know i figured hopefully you could tolerate that and so what i've done is delete the whole second half of the podcast which i'm going to have to re-record right now i attempted to roll back the firmware and had no luck so i just went into my big pelican travel case and pulled out my road uh little podcasting mixer which has the old original firmware and so that's what you're hearing now and i'll figure out how to you know what this is this is the week in indycar listener q a equivalent of texas pre-grid with the mclaren ecu glitch striking so i apologize but hey as our pal juan montoya likes to say it is what it is so let me pick up here (laughs) you know this is what we do in racing we adapt uh let me pick up here where i left off uh the only thing i'm going to do which is a little bit different and i need to move my normal clickety click mouse which i love the most and go to my non-click mouse because you know we just want to limit the amount of complaints that i get on a weekly basis i need to pull your questions back open and yes as my unpolished turd of a show i'm leaving all this in part of the ride i don't know if you enjoy it but uh uh, here we go um gonna get back into your questions here where i think i'm going to do something just a little bit different though uh, is rolling a question that I noticed came in late on the tweeters. That being from, let me find it. Let me find it. Nick Fletcher. Hey, Nick. MP, there is a poll sent out about IndyCar returning to Kentucky Speedway. I feel like this had surprisingly good results. Uh, what do you think the chances are of this returning to the schedule? So I'm clicking on the poll that our pals at Kentucky Speedway sent out. And of the 4,367 votes, there was an absolutely yes recorded by 81.6% of the respondents. I think that's the word to use there. So if we have the absolute yes, all caps and yes, by the way, for 81.6% of 4,367, what does that equate to? Like 3,500 people? So if we assume there's 3,500 ticket buyers there, and my math may be off, um, we also have a 10% of maybe. So, uh, you know, maybe it's 3,700. Heck, I think that's as many as saw the last Phoenix IndyCar race in 2018. So as for weather, this could become a thing. We know that as our man Robin Miller broke, what, I don't know, a year ago, maybe a little bit longer, uh, Nashville street course race is something that we've seen pop back up on the radar of possibility. Um, Obviously, that's in a different state than Kentucky, but I'm just mentioning this in terms of newish southern 
destination for IndyCar. I would say that if Kentucky can tell IndyCar, we are confident we would have 20,000 people show up and there's a way for IndyCar to make some sort of profit since as we just got through with the whole Indy Lights leader circle thing, uh, Roger isn't wanting to dip into his personal bank account to pay for this stuff. Uh, we'd want profits. That's how the leader circle is meant to be funded. Uh, there could be a thing, Nick, but just simply 35-ish hundred people saying, yeah, definitely. That's not enough to get any major sporting event to go anywhere. So if it's serious numbers, something that might even eclipse an Iowa race or something along those lines, one of the other ovals, then yeah, I would say there could be a possibility, but more than just good fan turnout, got to see that there is going to be a real serious way for IndyCar to actually make some money on this, whether it is the track itself paying a sanction fee or, you know, Whatever it is, there's got to be a pathway to making some dough. So that's the underlying thing. When it comes to any new motor race, we might be talking about for IndyCar. All right, we're going next to Derp DeForce. I don't know who you are, Mr. or Mrs. Derp DeForce. Reddit screen names tend to be non-instructional uh a lot of reddit screen names i find kind of hard to parse the gender so want to be all inclusive here mr mrs possibly both i don't know but thanks for sending this in marshall i can't be the only one thinking that there are quicker ways to sort out the field after a caution example one lapped car uh, lapped cars do a drive-through and rejoin at the end of the field example two while maintaining a certain speed Leading cars stay in the inside lane, lap cars in the second lane, and a command is given for the lap cars to reduce speed to allow the leading cars to clear them. When all is done, the lap cars can close the gap to the last leading car. I'm sure there are cons to these, but there are cons in the current methods to educate us. Well, Mr. and Mrs. Derp DeForce, uh, it seems like this is a description coming off of an oval. And an outline for maybe how to do things on an oval, knowing that we race on three different circuit types of circuits. Uh, this might be an oval thing to consider, but here's this. And then pivoting off of your main note of uh, there must be quicker ways to sort the field after a caution. And the two examples are the on-track sorting. As I understand it, as I'm told by Kyle Novak, IndyCar race director, even my pal Bo Barfield, IMSA race director, the most amount of time consumed with such things is actually in the rolling the tape back, looking at the who was where, when, when the yellow came out, who crossed what line, timing line where, and who should be jockeyed in positioned. The actual you move forward, you move back, fall into position, radio command and such, that can get a little ugly at times when instructions aren't heard or followed or understood. But as I understand things, as told to me by a couple of very good race directors, the time-consuming part is in the coming up with the list of who goes where by reviewing timing data, a number of factors. Again, sometimes it could be video, but it's having to figure out the script 
of who goes where, not just simply, oh, you're a lap down, will you fall back? But when this caution happened, who was where was a past happening? Uh, again, try and figure out exactly where everyone should be, then give the instructions of how it needs to happen physically. Physical side, I'm told, that's actually not the real time-consuming part. All right. I also fail to mention upon occasion that if you send in questions and I don't get to them and you want them answered, send them in again. And as our pal Craig Johnson uh, reminds me, apparently third time's a charm. So sorry, Craig. I suck. But it does take three times sometimes. So, so I may have been mistaken to assume that they'd solved cooling for the aero screen. Uh, while they work on solving the driver cooking issues with the aero screen, what are they doing? when mother nature decides to cover the track with dark clouds and falling rain with the addition of track spray are they looking at a rain x type solution or something similar to what the lmp2 cars use with a wiper also have a second aero screen question here from mark taylor uh all right so the cooking side yes uh, that is something where the drivers that i spoke with and i did speak with many after texas the biggest issues came during cautions and I think there's definitely going to be a need to insert some form of inline, small, but inline cooling fan uh, between the duct, the outside duct uh, that grabs the air, and then what feeds it into the helmet. Because at caution speeds, the lack of ram air effect apparently just really caused cockpit temperatures and drivers' brains to overheat in the extreme conditions, extreme heat at Texas. So just like we see with the little brake line cooling fans that drivers, say, in in NASCAR can turn on or off, we could look at doing something like that in IndyCar where it's driver-activated. Also, with electronics being pretty darn cool, it would not be too hard for... IndyCar teams to wire in, wire the power in, and control such a helmet fan to automatically kick on at speeds below X, and that could be changed from track to track. So whenever the data system sees the vehicle is traveling below, I don't know, 60 miles an hour, it triggers us to automatically feed power to the fan and kick on. And if it's a oval, again, you could adjust the minimum threshold where that happened or just make it manual. Uh, so that's that. As for rain, Craig, well, we did have a situation where AeroScreen's been hit with rain a couple of times. Testing at Barber, I believe Ryan Hunter-Ray spoke about that and said there was really no issues. We also had rain happening at Circuit of the Americas during the preseason open test and also pretty much a non-issue from what i heard not saying that we had crazy you know all-time history making downpour but we have had scenarios where it would appear the hydrophobic uh whatever you want to call it uh, material on the tear-offs does its job so it sheds water away but also just the way the water is hitting and then going around the aero screen uh, as i've been told from those who drove in the wet conditions that it really did not just linger and you know need something that would require a windshield wiper or similar so 
We still haven't been put through that crazy, you know, downpour 10 gallons of water per second in your shoes kind of thing. But at least in normal-ish scenarios, it seemed like it did okay. But we're just going to have to, like Texas, with the crazy heat and cooling, see what crazy rain does and how they fare in that regard. Let's go to the second arrow screen question here from Mark Taylor. Hearing that some drivers suffered from debris in their helmets delivered by the cooling system hose it made me wonder, can the hose be a conduit for fire or other dangerous substance to reach the drivers? Well, would certainly be possible, Mark. I would say that since the hoses so far are plastic, that the likelihood of them melting quickly is something to consider before fire might make it through the hose or, you know, get fed into the top of the Nomex liner in those helmets. Would also say those helmets have vents and openings uh, in other places other than the top cooling um, device as well. So there's that to consider. We did have debris coming in, dirt, sand, rubber. Will Power said it was hilarious watching New Garden take off his helmet and balaclava after the texas race and said you know how i won't even attempt to do his accent but you know how the old school drivers have those photos where they'd have the goggles on and probably nothing else and they'd take off their goggles and they'd have the raccoon eyes where actually where the goggles were that was the only part that was clean and the rest of their face was all black from oil and debris and muck he said well it was the opposite with joseph uh since his eye and cheek and eyebrow and whatnot were the only areas that weren't covered. Uh, those were all dirty and mucky and everything else was clean. So he said he had a proper laugh at Joseph's expense. Would say for sure here, Mark, that there needs to be some form of filter placed on the duct, drawing the air into that hose that then goes to the helmet to stop these items from getting in and through because the the thought of Something getting into a driver's eye, not very good. Um, as for bad stuff, fire, fuel, whatever, the only thing that comes to mind, and I don't know how high effort, high tech, high whatever we want to go here, but I do know that there's probably a small Moog valve or something like that that could be used that wor- maybe mounts at or within the connector on the helmet itself where the hose connects to. And again, if we're just talking sensors, I'm thinking of this like a butterfly valve, frankly, just like uh, on an engine and allowing air into the motor, opening and closing that butterfly. Uh, Is there something that, you know, if it senses a temperature, a serious temperature, you know, something halfway between baking ambient and fire, you know, if it senses a temperature in that range that it automatically closes. Um, And therefore, you know, if there is fire, that hose can melt. If it's somehow fire shooting from behind a car into the duct and then trying to get into the helmet, you know, again, depending how fast acting it is, I would imagine such things are possible. I just don't know 
how far you want to go down this road. It's all sounds great in the name of safety, but again, I don't know. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I think it's a great idea that you've, you've, or topic you've raised here. I just don't know how far is IndyCar, how far IndyCar is willing to go. Let's see. Let's go to Mark at MMB99999 from the good old tweeters. Says, MP, your guess. If Road America's doubleheader will be two days only instead of three days, um, as I understand it, it's going to be two one-day events, exactly like we had at Texas. Schedule, hopefully, a little bit more friendly so crews can get uh, a little bit more rest before the race. But as I understand it, we're going to have two standalone days practice qualifying race. Not going to have a opening day Friday where there's practice and who knows qualifying and then maybe qualifying for Saturday's race. And then maybe on Saturday you got to practice and a qualifying and the qualifying's for Sunday or blah, blah, blah. As I understand it, what we saw at Texas, that same exact format is going to be playing out at Elkhart Lake, which is pretty awesome. So there you go. Uh, Jose Javier Hernandez. Thanks for sending this in, by the way. Jose mistakenly dropped it into one method to a direct message and fired this back in through the facey book. It says, Marshall, with the issues between the new Laguna Seca promoter and the historic reunion committee and between the new promoter and the contracts issues with the volunteers group as the IndyCar race in peril. Uh, let me answer that first. I hope not, but I can't answer that definitively, Jose, for one basic reason. Without volunteers, the event doesn't happen, nor does IMSA, which takes place, what, a week before, I think, or whatever. You know, you've got IMSA and IndyCar there in September. If you don't have the volunteers, of which there are hundreds, and those volunteers make the event financially feasible because the track, well, the county, Monterey County, which owns it, does not intend to spend the money to hire hundreds of volunteers to tear tickets and help park cars and look after concessions and do bathrooms and do hospitality and do this. I mean, again, just registration, <laughs> uh, just so many things. They have no intention... I really say no ability to spend money on such things like that. That's why you can have a nonprofit group managing the track, meaning they get there's some on the you know senior level that get paid salary, but again, it's not a company itself that is raking in profits. They're just being paid by the county to perform a duty. But the vast majority of the people involved are all volunteers. So you don't have volunteers, you don't have major motor racing events. That's not strictly related to Laguna Seca, by the way, Jose. You'll find that many racetracks have some form of volunteer base that do something. And even the ones that own the track have all full-time employees and they, you know, pretty much everybody's on a salary, even then you'll find out that there's probably a couple of dozen volunteers that come in for a major event to help out. Uh, with Laguna Seca, 
it's a pretty thin number of full-time employees under the management company A&D Narigi LLC. And seriously, the huge slice of the pie are all volunteers. So IndyCar, IMSA, anything, pro event, no big volunteer base, which they currently do not have because they told them pound sand. We're tired of you and you're not respecting us and treating us properly in negotiations. Laguna Seca is not a viable event holding venue. So it's got to get solved, Jose, if they want to be a viable venue. So let's get to your next question. Is the track viable with this unproven management team? Says it seems to me that COVID-19 is being used as an F1 style excuse to cancel an event. In your opinion, were they selected to hasten the closure of the track so the parkland can be repurposed by the county? Um, no, not at all. So Monterey County owns Laguna Seca, owns that property. It was gifted to them by the army back in, what, 74, 1974, I believe. They own it. It's theirs. They can do with it as they please. If they decided they no longer want to hold motor racing events and to do something different with it, it's theirs to do with. They would not need to hire an inept track manager to make everybody hate him or them, not work with them, make the track no longer viable, and then make changes to how it's used in reaction to bad will and failure. They could just do it now or six months ago or whenever. There's a genuine desire by Monterey County to continue using Laguna Seca to generate profits. It's why it's there. It's a business. And I'm not going to go into the whole history here because some of y'all probably know it very well. If not, I've written about it extensively. It, it I wouldn't say exhaustively. That would imply that I've written so much that there's nothing more to say. I'm exhausted. I don't want to write any more about it. That's what I mean here. Um, The folks that used to run the circuit, they'd been around. The company did it for, I think, 50-something years. Crazy forever is how long they did it. Um, Since day one. And they started to make some very bad decisions in the mid to late 2000s, were advised against making some bad financial decisions, went forward anyways, lost millions of dollars, attempted to hide that, cooked the books, lied, all kinds of nonsense. That got uncovered. That old management team was kind of stood down. (sighs) County tried to get rid of that management group, Scramp. You might have seen me write, write about that. Uh, try to get rid of them. They did. They chose someone else. Couldn't come to terms with them. So they asked Scramp to come back for about a year and a half. They did. Then towards the end of last year, uh, the person, the new new person, who was hired by Scramp to run things, Tim McGrain, someone who I I like quite a bit. Uh, he and the person at the county, Dwayne Woods, the administrative assist the administrative assistant office office of the administrative assistant um he's a permanent employee not an elected official 
uh, Mr. Woods, who readily admits he doesn't know about racing, doesn't like racing, doesn't care about racing or cars, fancies himself as a big businessman, a very smart man, very smart man. Just spend a moment. You will come to know this is the smartest guy in the room. Uh, he engineered the new management company to come in, the new promoter. Guy with no experience, John Narigi. Never met him, no opinion of him. Can't say whether he's nice, not nice, great at his job, bad at his job. I have no opinion, never met the guy. It'd be stupid for me to offer an opinion. I can say that I've certainly listened to a lot of people who have interacted with him, some who might even work for him, and they have not had complimentary things to say. I can tell you, because these things actually do matter, uh, in every instance, this has not been me going out asking, hey, what's he like? And, you know, I, it's the calls and texts and emails coming in unsolicited saying, holy crap, uh, I can't believe this happened or was just said to me or we were treated this way. Just again, in receiving mode, can't vouch for the full accuracy of that because, again, that's one-sided, but I can tell you that on rare occasion are these things coming in from people I don't know and whose character I don't know and who I've come to either trust or not trust. So again, just receiving these things, Jose. We have a situation where Mr. Woods decided that he knew better than everybody. He was going to engineer Scramps ouster, which he did. Uh, they came up with a sham vote to decide they asked for new management proposals. As we learned, as we uncovered on Racer, and I'm sure others probably uncovered it as well, maybe before us, I don't know. Um, the fix was in from the beginning. Mr. Narigi filed his new LLC, what, a month, two months before the vote happened, and at least a month before the public call for new track management proposals. So a guy from the hotel business who knows nothing about racing has never, and also readily admits, doesn't know about it, doesn't really care about it, it's not his thing. Before the public even knew that they were going to solicit new track management proposals, registers a new company to that ends up winning the bid, <laughs> uh, the head of the board of supervisors, I forget his name, but there is a, you know, there's a head. Retired judge, well-known, as we documented, the links between Mr. Narigi and the head of the Board of Supervisors, campaign contribution contributions from Mr. Narigi to the Board of Supervisors. This gentleman is on, Mr. Narigi's on, this gentleman's one board of one foundation that we know of. There's just, and Mr. Narigi has been told by many people, was proposed as the track new track manager by the head of the Board of Supervisors magically that's the person who was selected despite no experience and despite being the only person listed in the proposal not i've got a vast team of experienced track managers from finance to facilities to marketing and promotion like here's the whole a team that i'm going to put around me and they're going to make me smarter and i'm just going to run them but they're really their subject matter experts none was one person just him and 
was chosen. This is all engineered by Mr. Woods. Well known. And so that's what they've done. It reminds me of the old IndyCar iconic committee when they were trying to find the next manufacturer for IndyCar's future chassis. And they put out call for proposals and all kinds of designs came in. I don't know. What was it? Five, six, seven different ones. Some were pretty lame. Some looked pretty awesome and made sense. And lo and behold, what did they do in the end? Unanimous vote for Delara. And I'm not bagging on Delara, criticizing Delara. I'm criticizing the iconic committee who jerked us around and wasted our time and wasted the time of the people who were submitting proposals trying to be IndyCar's next chassis supplier. It's strictly for show. Strictly something done to be able to say, hey, we tried and guess, hey, guess what we came up with? This is the same exact thing that has happened in Monterey County, their equivalent of the iconic committee. They had chosen the winner before the competition even started. And this was all done led by Mr. Woods. So what this means, Jose, is if this becomes a financial success and the reunion is held again and IMSA holds its race and IndyCar and others. And it's, there's money coming in and there's profit and it's going back to the County. We are all truly going to say, thank you, Mr. Woods for kicking scramp out for engineering, Mr. Narigi to come in for you to be the person pulling all the strings. Cause that's, what we're talking about, right? Mr. Narigi clearly has no experience doing this, but Mr. Woods, you have engineered this. You're the architect and you are the man pulling the strings and Laguna Seca is stronger and better and more profitable than ever. Thank you. All credit goes to you. And if that doesn't happen, he needs to own it. 100%. Not Mr. Narigi, who we know knows nothing about this. He's not the guy. He's the person being tasked with taking instructions. So, would just say this to close, Jose. I love Laguna Seca. It's one of my two home tracks. It's the first track I ever remember being at. It is just, it's a part of me. And many that I know will tell you the same thing. There's a a spiritual kind of thing that comes with it. I don't care who runs the track. I don't care if the county runs it. I don't care if they hire external managers. I don't care if it's Scramp, Andy Narigi, DNA, Igirigi. I don't care what name, what letters, what anything. I don't care. Ampsk, Scrampsk, Pamsk, don't care. I just want to see it succeed. That statement is something I've heard from at least a hundred different people. When this topic comes up, I don't care. We just just love it. We just want it to succeed. I don't know if I would say I'm fully convinced that success is what is awaiting the track right now with the direction it's being taken. But I can tell you that whatever it is, I'm going to root for its success 
And if the people doing it right now bring that success, awesome. We are all celebrating. And if not, awesome. Bring in the next people. But if it's just going to be in a state of lingering disrepair where things fall apart and people walk away from the table and go to hell and this, that, and the other, and we're not doing, we're not signing anything and we're quitting and we're not. Not exactly what you want to hear. So let's go to Dave Truty. Dave, I wrote this down uh, when I was recording, when it started clipping and I had to delete it. Uh, your question, is there progress towards franchising for the car owners, short or long term? I wrote that down because provided I get my time with Roger Pinsky, that's one of the questions I'm going to ask. Hope to have an update for you on that. Sean Lee. Hey, Sean. I have a question about how a race gets scheduled. I think I have the basics. A promoter gets the idea, rents the track, pays IndyCar. Uh, says, I'm sure there's a, hundreds of permutations there. Uh, there are. So let me stop here because you've got a couple of things you throw in. So uh, isn't necessarily a promoter, right? So in the case of Green Savory Race Promotions, they go to the mayor and or board of people in St. Petersburg and say, hey, I think we could put on a race. I think it would be a really good showcase for your city. I think we could boost numbers with your hotels, your restaurants, rental cars, yada, 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 yada. It'd be a nice little bump to the economy. Uh, it would certainly be a good general look in for folks, right? Broadcast on television and Hey, come to St. Pete, see it be there. It's a beautiful thing. And we could hopefully make a little bit of money. We will do some upgrades to things in and around the street course you know, maybe need some new manhole covers or maybe this needs to get paved a little bit. All right, well, we'll help with offset some of the costs there. You get some improvements to your city. Great. Uh, but we also are going to be, you know, trying to make a profit here. And so here we go. Nice marquee event, big sporting event downtown, and off we go. That's a promoter getting an idea. You ask a question, how do street circuits come about? That's often the way. You have other situations where, let's go back to Laguna Seca. It's owned by the county. They have their own management team that they pay on the payroll, comes out of money from the county, and they put on events, and they pay uh, IndyCar to be there. So that's that. Um, you have some other interesting things too. permanent road courses that have a promoter that come in um, and put on events there too. green savory race promotions does that at Portland. For example, uh, they own, I believe mid Ohio now. So they, that's their own thing. So they do all manner. They've got two street courses in Toronto and St. Pete that they put on, on behalf of the city with the city, so on. They come into an existing facility that isn't theirs at Portland and put on an event. Um, and then Mid-Ohio, it's actually all theirs. So, yeah, all manner of things covered there. Um, you also say, how does TV get involved? Well, again, we would assume that we're talking about series that are major and have a TV partner. 
So would assume that before an IndyCar says, hey, we're thinking about going and racing in Anchorage, Alaska, a uh, phone call go to NBC Sports to say, uh, you got stuff up there that if we wanted to go do it, you could cover it with, you know, the good old TV or could you drive up and how much would it cost? And, you know, all those things are pretty much normal. You talk about who gets paid how, again, completely varies. Uh, sometimes we've had IndyCar paying for an event. So they do a track rental. So instead of being paid by a promoter or a track, they actually have select occasions paid to rent the track. And then it's upon them to sell advertising space, to sell TV commercials, hospitality suites, and try and turn a profit that way. So to your point, lots of options. Your final question, do teams have to show up? Well, that's where we get back to the leader circle, Sean. The way teams get leader circles is by signing a document that says, we promise to show up to all the races you hold this season. And if you don't, well, then you don't get your leader circle. So for those who sign on the good old dotted line to get that roughly $1.2 million a year, they are indeed legally bound to show up and do that. You then have the others who aren't part of the leader circle who can indeed show up as well. So there you go. Uh, we're going to go to Daniel Ingleton. Hey, Daniel. Love this one. On current cars, there's normally only one main sponsor. And I assume you're talking side pods. Very limited other logos on the livery, whereas back in the 1990s, you could barely see the livery beneath the stickers or the overalls of the driver with the sheer number of different sponsors on them. Ask what caused this change? Well, using the 1990s as the compare and contrast, Daniel, I would say the main difference is side pods and side pod height. So what we have today, um, IndyCar side pods are kind of round molded things. With most of the 1990s chassis, maybe not so much like a 1990 Lola. There's a couple of exceptions, but by and large, we had a lot of fairly tall slab-sided side pods. And so what that meant was you had basically just a large rectangular space where you could put big old stickers, big old logos. And today, eh, not so much that way. Not so much in terms of that same space. A lot, again, curvature and such where the actual unblemished, uncurved portion of the side pods, not giant. So that's why you don't see giant things, long, big, tall text or whatever wise in place. Uh, also would say if we're talking 90s, you tended to have some on the road and street courses, some pretty big front and rear wing end plates where a lot of stuff could go. Um, yeah, I mean, again, just more of an evolution of the times, I would say, Daniel, aerodynamically, um, not a lot of big, flat, squarish type things on the cars. Could this be changed with the next chassis and its arrow? Eh, maybe a little bit. I don't, you know, the big goal is to drastically reduce aerodynamic drag. And so in the name of better sponsor space, could there be a sacrifice there? Possibly. 
Possibly, especially if the horsepower numbers are just going to keep coming up. If they're really going to be something serious, 900 plus, I'd say, yeah, actually IndyCar could intentionally go and would recommend it. You raise a great point here, Daniel. IndyCar could intentionally go to more slab-sided rectangular side pods that do just give better sponsor space and representation than what we have right now. Uh, Where are we going next? You know, actually, we don't have a ton of questions left. So there we go. Uh, I actually just said that about an hour ago uh, when I recorded it the first time, too. Maybe I'm having deja dumb or deja vu. I don't know what. Um, It's 8.34, by the way. Uh, Let's see. We're going to go to our man, Ron Terpstra, again. Wouldn't be an episode of the week in IndyCar listener Q&A without two from Ryan. Doesn't mean that I read two from Ryan, but yeah. Uh, MP, Mike Hole has called you up. Oh, God. Why is he doing that? Um, He says, with the new IMSA DPI regulations at least another year away, Chip Ganassi's decided since they're not going sports car racing right now, they're going to expand to run four cars in 2021. He says, I already have a sponsor lined up. He wants to know who you recommend for the seat that is not currently an IndyCar. So we're expanding from three to four. There's one seat. Ryan says, the only thing the driver needs to bring is a helmet and talent. Hashtag me personally. I say, Simona Silvestro, Matthew Brabham, Felipe Nazar, and Colin Brown all get a tryout. Oh, Ryan, you bastard. My answer here is going to be much shorter than the original one because I really lamented this one. So here's the general thought process. I'm trying to drink a lot of liquids because my voice is going quickly. Simona Di Silvestro. Based on a lot of things I said towards the opening of the show, uh, Simona is going to do the most good for IndyCar if she gets hired. As noted earlier, she had a couple of races with Andretti when the Honda Aero kit was terrible. We didn't get to see her at her best, nor did she have a lot of time to really work in a big proper team. It's always with a smaller KV type, HVM type, shoestring budget. Manager was a little douchey and, you know, just now granted, she had some great folks around her too. Uh, my pal Shane Severotna, who I can never get his last name right, uh, who I've known forever. Shane, Trish, uh, Donaldson, why am I forgetting? I'm sorry. She had some really good people around her. It's been too many years, so I apologize. I'm forgetting some of their names or mispronunciating them, but she had some good people around her. She had at least one or two that weren't, rarely had an opportunity to grow from year to year. She would do IndyCar the most good if she was selected. Obviously, the gender part is a huge aspect of that, and I hate to say it, but let's just be honest. Uh, She is the best that I have seen, and I think many of us have seen among women in IndyCar, and she's never had a chance to actually grow, being a big Ganassi-like team where you go, ooh, they're going to find the best parts of you that we haven't seen before, and they're going to amplify the parts that we've already seen that were great, and the things that were a little bit iffy, they're going to drum those things out of you. Uh, she's never had that. So Simona in a fourth Ganassi car, 
I love that all day long. Maddie Brabs. Yeah. So the kid has two IndyCar races to his name. 2016 Indy GP and then the Indy 500. Finished 16th in the GP in a KV car entered by my pal Brett Crusher Murray. Finished 22nd in the Indy 500. His one and only in a year that wasn't great for the team. Uh, they were expanding, running too many cars. Maddie, who's been pretty quiet about this, but I'll say it because it's me saying it, not him. Um, they had a bit of a floor issue, ride height issue, where part of the floor rubbed the ground so much that it burned a hole in the floor, which kind of sort of makes consistent downforce not a thing. So for him to finish and finish 22nd, yeah. Um, yeah, the kids had no chances in IndyCar is basically what I'm saying. Uh, winning the pro Mazda title did okay. We didn't have a great, great year in lights, but again, he's still a pup. Uh, Simone has had multiple years as a pro, even if not for the biggest, best teams, she'd do the most good for the series. Maddie, I would say is the really, truly lost talent what could have been i've seen that kid uh, on the road to indy do things that were just like holy crap why does anyone else bother showing up it's all him i uh, gotta believe that that kid's still there just wholly undeveloped so it would be more than a one-year process here ryan for maddie but i think he's a race winning driver and a with a couple of years and a Dario and a Dixie and a whomever really making the most out of him. Uh, I think that kid gives the Felixes and the Coltons and the whomever's fits, man, I'd love to see that, but he's got the longest way to go among those who've been on the road to Indy kind of in and around the series. Felipe Nazar, I think he's the most turnkey road and street course guy, uh, person of all four. Uh, I mean, come on. Um, but the oval part is obviously something you'd have to learn from scratch. So that's a bit of a deficit there. But I think in terms of immediate impact, uh, who's going to be instantly, holy crap, fast six competitive among the four you've mentioned, that's Felipe Nasser. Uh Colin Brown is the most fascinating name here. <sighs> It'd be an experiment. He's 32, I think, 31, 32. He and Joseph Newgarden used to be neck-and-neck neck types in carding and such. He is someone who I think with a couple of years, not too many years, but I think within two years might be the best overall driver of all four you've mentioned. And I know of prior to the COVID-19, the Corolla virus, I do know of one team I've mentioned before that's seriously interested in getting him into a car. I do need to check in to see if they are still serious about that. But he's a guy with so much oval experience, NASCAR, mind you, but so much oval experience, so much technical knowledge, developing car after car after car after car, and crazy road course skills since he's been, what, 15, 16 years old? racing in sports cars, prototypes, GTs, you name it. I mean, that guy, like, 
if there's a guy, I keep saying guy, I don't mean to be gender specific. It's just a habit. So I apologize. If there's a driver among the four you've listed and probably any others that I can think of that has the best chance of being the next Robert Wickens type of out of left field, holy crap, where did that come from? It would be Colin. Robbie, we know, again, had a half day in a car at Sebring, got the call up to do the Friday at Road America when Mikhail Lotion's travel visa got held up, then was able to do preseason testing leading into 2018. And so by the time we got to St. Pete, not saying he had a million miles, but he was at least in a good enough place to where he could be, he could show himself and be competitive right away. And damn, was he competitive. And then completely new to ovals, damn near wins his second race, which happened to be an oval until a strategy error was made. Give Colin that amount, give Colin that rough equivalent of on-track time and testing and whatnot as Robbie had, and I think he shows up at a St. Pete, you know, 2021 and is hunting for the fast six like Robbie. I don't know if he's on pole, but he's got that kind of talent. And when we're talking about getting to the ovals, yeah. Um, So I'm just saying, Felipe, we've seen, we know from his Formula 1 experience, IMSA champion in his first try in a Cadillac DPI. Matty, we've seen super talent road to Indy. Didn't have a great situation to do his first IndyCar race or, you know, event, but we know that there's untapped talent there for sure. Simona, you know, boy, there's a lot there that can be further developed for sure. Just saying, if you want the intrigue line, I think Colin strikes me as a one where you go, ooh. The other three, I kind of sort of know. Colin, ooh, that could be the big shocker. Uh, Gary Chin, his MP many years ago, Formula One had groove tires. What was the reason behind that? And Would having groove tires benefit IndyCar? Great question, Gary. Well, cars are getting super extra quick, and Formula One is looking for ways to slow them down without having to change the formula. And so they said, you know, let's take away grip. Let's take away the amount of contact patch, the amount of tread touching the ground. So they went to groove tires and took away whatever the percentage was of rubber hitting the ground and slowed the cars. And none of the drivers love them at all. Uh, Would say there's no real value here to do that in IndyCar. Uh, I can't really think of any reason. So, no, this was a specific thing done in F1. Bit of a workaround. Hey, cars are getting to be too fast. How do we slow them without going to new engines and new this and new that and just cause crazy amounts of expenditures for the teams and manufacturers? Well, they went and said, tires, you guys modify those. That'll get us the thing we want, and it won't cost our teams a ton of money. Um, Teams still spend a ton of money trying to, work their way around it to make the cars as quick as possible. But anyways, 
Uh, your second question is the one I alluded to earlier. I apologize. I didn't remember it's from you. You said on a scale of one to a hundred, one to 10, one being the easiest, 10 being the hardest. How easy is it to get Roger Penske, the captain to be the guest on your show? I would imagine it'd be like a hundred. Well, Roger has been on the show, Gary. Let me see how many times, at least once or twice, maybe three times. Let me take that back. Not on the week in IndyCar, but as I don't even know. Let me check. Um, he's been on my podcast. Let's see. Once, twice, three times. Yeah. Uh, three times, maybe four. So yeah, been on the podcast multiple times. For the week in IndyCar, well, that goes back to what I mentioned somewhere in the open of uh, a request and a denial uh, coming out of NASCAR uh, with a particular driver that interested me to speak with. And it's the cost-benefit analysis, Gary. And I wish it wasn't the case, but it is what it is. Uh for me to ask Roger something to get a audio clip for whatever, if I need to talk to Roger, I'll just call him or he'll call me. And again, the guy is running zillion dollar businesses. Um, he works all day, every day. And so if I need something from Roger, three to five minutes or less, just call him easiest off we go. Super easy. Best guy. If I need more time, 10, 15, 20, well, that's a formal request and looking for holes in the calendar. And there needs to be, you know, a reasonable reason, not just, Hey, just feel like catching up in general, but like, Hey, doing a thing, writing about a thing, doing a theme on something, not a problem for something like a, just a general week in IndyCar visit Q and a takes 30 to 40 minutes. Usually if not a little bit longer, that's where, hey, you've got many companies to run and you're responsible for tens of thousands of employees and so on. That's a harder ask. I've never asked because, not that I'm afraid I'd get a no, but just with Roger, it doesn't really fit. You know, could he, if we were at the track and he's doing nothing else? Yes. But just again, since most of these episodes involve someone calling in from somewhere, the middle of their day, end of the day, whatever, you know, 30 to 40 minutes for Roger, uh, if he's going to commit that time to someone, it's either going to be business related or on the cost benefit analysis side, Gary, and this is just what it is. Um, he's not going to give that to me. And I know that, and I wouldn't really ask for it. Because while I love him, and I like to think he loves me, and he loves you all, if he's going to commit 30 to 40 minutes of his time, it's going to be to a large mass audience type thing. If I'm going to give you that time, I need to know that it's going to reach a whole super amount of people. And while we have a great and very low audience here, this is not going to be put up crazy numbers for him to say, yep, that time investment I made was rewarded with giant traffic that reached the entire planet. That's just the reality. So like my 
denials from one or two people today and why I wouldn't ask Roger to do the show like this again, unless we're at the track and he's got the time. Um, I just need to do a better job. And I say that with all humility, I need to do a better job. I need to grow the podcast audience. I need to grow my name in the sport. I mean, not from like a fame or whatever other BS, but to a point to where if I want to interview somebody in a different form of racing, I don't have to lead off with explaining who I am and what I do and the reason and the hope and the whatever, because the person on the other end has zero clue who I am and therefore has no attachment to who I am, what I do, knowledge of the audience, uh, inner knowledge or belief or conviction that this is going to be a wonderful thing for their driver or team owner. Uh, I just have to do a better job and make what we do with the podcast better known so that I can ask more people outside of my normal lanes and have them go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah I've heard of that guy, at least. Oh, he's an idiot, but, yeah, at least I've heard of him. It's when you have folks going, and you are who? Makes it a little bit hard. So throw in a guy like Roger running billions of dollars worth of companies every day, and, yeah, a good old sit-down chatty chat with me compared to someone where that chat's going to be on NBC sports or Fox or whatever. Yeah. So that's just a reality, my man. I don't take it personally because it'd be silly if I did. Okay. We got three more items here. I'm going to wrap up our show with this one's fun. And I got to take a sip here because it's going to involve me some word reading here from our man, Jordan Darwin. Marshall. Some hashtag me personally interesting data that the 2020 IndyCar champion and the question he had recently about whether they should receive an asterisk uh, brought all this to mind. So something I'd forgotten but rediscovered recently uh, was how short some of the early Earl, as I call it, the IRL seasons were. As late as 2000, the IRL season was only nine races. In 97, the IRL only had eight races. And only five in the inaugural IRL year of 1996. He says to make it worse, originally part of the IRL formula was to make the Indy 500 the season finale. He says nothing like points racing in the biggest race of the year, huh? He says, therefore, the 1996 IRL air quote season was a mere three races. Walt Disney World hooked on Phoenix in the Slick Race and Gardener 500 at Indy. Um, he says the later 1996 races in Loudoun and Vegas wrapped into the 97 championship, even though they ran under drastically different chassis and engine rules. I'm going to stop here for just a sec. So, yes, uh, I was there for the start of the 97 season. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that was crazy. And I'm glad you brought that up, Jordan. And I guess I forget about it because it was so crazy and seemed so nonsensical that yes, the IRL started in 1996 using cart turbocharged Indy cars and did those handful of races 
then returned for the second half of the season the following year. So this weird kind of NBA style, right? We're going to start latter stages of 96, then resume after a little while in 97 and yeah, uh, span two calendar years. Uh, uh Uh-huh. The WEC has been doing that in recent years too. But yeah, but beyond that, to Jordan's point, hey, so we're going to have one totally different engine and chassis formula to start the championship in one year. Then come back the next year. The totally brand new chassis and engine formula. (laughs) Uh, Wild times, my friends. Wild times. Jordan goes on to say, ultimately, the 1996 IRL season, co-champions, Buzz Calkins and Scott Sharp do not have an asterisk for what they did. So I'm not sure why the 2020 champion should. So here we go. Uh, he then closes by saying, at least that's the way I hashtag me personally. See it, MP. You can quote Ed me if I'm not being hashtag spongy enough. And there's a great reference to Ed Carpenter and his comments about his driver, Renus VK, who we left. So, yeah. No asterisks back then, although there's a mental one. Boy, is there a big mental one, Jordan, but not an actual one uh, for having this inaugural IRL season that spanned two calendar years, culminated and finished at the Indy 500, and awarded two drivers, Buzz Calkins of Colorado, a journeyman driver at best, super nice guy, just... Name an IndyCar driver where you go, yeah, if your dad or mom or whatever didn't have a lot of money to pay for this, you'd never be there. That's kind of Buzz Calkins. You know, he had skill. He was capable of driving. He was capable of doing things. Um, But, yeah, he's not a guy that went up against cart drivers because if he had, he if the field was 25 cars, Buzz would have been you know, 21st, 22nd, kind of everywhere. Um, And then Scott Sharp, who I love Scott Sharp. A weird thing, Jordan, when I think back to the 96 IRL co-champions that were awarded, I always remember Buzz Calkins. It's probably because uh, Buzz came up racing on the West Coast and saw him starting out in Formula Fords and then move his way up into lights and so on. So, probably because I got, you know, I watched him firsthand because I was there competing in the same series, you know, with teams in those series. Probably that's why he stands out to me. Now, granted, I did see a lot of Scott Sharp's kind of, you know, early-ish career coming into Trans Am and some other things too, but I always remember Buzz. I never remember Scott. And that's why I have the, the mental asterisks here. So... In a normal IRL year, if we were to just forget 96 altogether and start the 97 or 98 or 99 championship, whatever, and say, all right, Buzz, you are full season in your G-Force Oldsmobile or whatever, and Scott, you're full season in your Delara Oldsmobile, whatever, and we're just going to go run for the whole entire season and would you come out as champion at the end, either one of you? 
I'm really struggling to say yes. So that's why that's why mentally I've always had that asterisk there for those two. It was such a crazy, stupid formula that they set up with this split year, split chassis, split engine, yada, yada, yada. Oh, such a mess. So it was all real and valid, right? I mean, they held a championship and this is how they did it. So, you know, not invalidating them, but in a normal year without all those things, no one would have predicted either one would win a championship that started in March and ended in September. Uh, and that's not speaking ill of them. Uh, I just don't see that being a reality other than this one odd compromised year. Two to go. JJ Gertler. I asked JJ to send this in. He says, Change of dates at Road America means I'll miss out on what was going to be my first trip to World Bratwurst headquarters. So I want my ticket to go to somebody who's going to appreciate the experience. Um, it's a couple of things he mentions. So I just figure and said, hey, this would just be a fun thing to give to somebody because JJ's not looking for money because he's rich. Oh, man, is he rich. He's a multi-thousandaire from what I've heard. Uh, he closes by saying, do you think it might be a good prize for some fortunate podcast listener? I do. So in what I mentioned when I recorded this the first time, I'm going to do this super simple. We're going to go to the MP podcast Facebook page. I'm going to post this episode. And the first person to respond who says, I am able to go and will go and use your ticket, will get the ticket. Someone who just wants to get a ticket to have one? No, you can't have it. Someone who wants a ticket and then wants to sell it? Come on, man. So if you were thinking of going and you were on the fence in JJ's ticket, again, we're not talking a ton of money here, but if JJ's ticket is the thing that can change your mind or cement your decision, then yeah. So we'll just do it that way, real simple-like. So I'm going to post the episode. Hopefully you'll be hearing this. And when you do, um, respond, post a comment on the MP Podcast Facebook page only. Don't do it on Twitter. Don't do it on, don't DM me, please. Uh, I try and be lenient here, but I'm just make my life simple. Marshall Pruitt Podcast Facebook page. I'm going to post this episode in the comments for the episode. Just the first person who says, I will take it and go to the race. JJ will send it to you. And if a second person makes that comment and we have it, something falls through in the first, then we got a fallback plan. Um, but yeah, just trying to do a good thing here. And JJ being really kind said, well, Hey, maybe we could just give this to a podcast listener. So there's your instructions. Final thing here. <laughs> Our pal, Carlos Villalobos. Carlos says MP following the example of Homestead, Miami, after which current or past driver, would you name a track southernmost tunnel? He's mentioning this in response to Homestead, Miami stating that they're going to name their southernmost tunnel after Jimmy Johnson, seven-time NASCAR champion who's retiring at the end of the year. 
Carlos goes on to say, if it's one of my nationality, I would not take it personally. Thanks and the best to Mrs. Pruitt and you and the cats. Well, so here's the thing, Carlos, because I'm a boy and my mind is just polluted, full of dumb boy fart jokes and otherwise. Um, my first thought was southernmost tunnel in Miami. And since our man, Elio Castro Neves, lives in or around Miami, and since Elio, I believe, has won one or two races at Homestead Miami and is a three-time Indy 500 winner, two-time depending on how you see the 2002 race there with Paul Tracy. And he made popular the phrase, uh, hashtag code brown about poop in his pants. Uh, I am really sorry to say, Carlos, that because I'm a boy and I have dumb boy thoughts, reading your assembly of words here, talking about how Jimmy Johnson is going to have the track southernmost tunnel renamed in his honor, I am going to have to protest with our friends at Homestead Miami and say no your local resident, Elio Castro Neves, a man who has brought Code Brown, which we know certainly makes use of a southernmost tunnel. That man is indeed the best person to have the track southernmost tunnel named in his honor. Would I go as far as suggesting that Code Brown tunnel be painted the shade that he has made famous for describing a, oh, I poop my pants moment in the car, uh, a little bit on the nose. I wouldn't go that far, but uh, yeah, has to be Elio, has to be Code Brown. And he's a Miami guy, right? That's where he's made his life. So that's my answer. Thank you, Carlos. Thank you, everybody, for your questions. I hope, although you haven't heard most of them that were done the first time, I hope the second pass is better than the first. Um, Want to say true thanks to justice brothers and cooper tires really really big supporters of what we do also have torontomotorsports.com they they power my soul when it comes to all the fun things that we do and it's an ongoing fun that we try and do and then also bell racing helmets usa so with all that said i am marshall pruitt this is the marshall pruitt podcast brought to you by those four fine partners up next here michael andretti guest q a on wednesday and i've got one or two other things i'm going to try and get out this week who knows maybe tuesday wednesday thursday and i hope that you really enjoy them and i will speak to you very soon